Good morning, Grace. If you would please turn with me to Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one. It's so striking to me this morning that Peter is delivering an incredibly important message to people that he loves. As he is about to, to exit from his life on earth, he wants to give an incredibly important message. And, and then I look out at you and, and I see so many people who I dearly love and I recognize that God has seen fit to provide me with a faith family, uh, people uh, who I know have my back, who I get to worship uh, arm uh, uh, shoulder to shoulder with and so it's a privilege to be able to stand here and um, and play a part in unpacking this very important word with you all today uh, I'm really really grateful to be here with you second uh, Peter chapter 1 verses 16 through the end of the chapter we're going to go ahead and dive in verse 16 for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what's happening in these verses? We see Peter, and he begins to make a defense or an argument against false teachers. This may not be super apparent uh, from the actual words we just read, but the context of Second Peter makes it clear. There's some unique wording even that makes this clear. Peter is dealing with false teachers. The whole of what's going on with false teachers is going to be unpacked in the coming weeks as we continue to study 2 Peter. So it's probably not best for us to spend our time thinking about all that, that is going on with the false teachers. But there are some things that are incredibly important for our passage. So I just want to summarize what's going on here. The false teachers were essentially coming and they were saying that the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return, his second coming, uh, this day where, where Christ will come in glory and in fury to judge the living and the dead. This day is made up. It's not going to happen. It's make-believe. This is their message. What Peter and what the apostles have been proclaiming, what they've been preaching, it's not going to happen. And the reason why it's not going to happen is actually because of what Peter has been addressing in chapter 1. It's not going to happen because these people, these, these false teachers, they loved their sin. 
They loved their sin. They wanted to indulge the flesh. They wanted to live hedonistically sinful lifestyles and abide in the flesh, not live according to the spirit. They weren't concerned with adding to their faith virtue and self-control and knowledge and so on. They, They didn't care about earnestly striving to confirm their election. No, they they were content in their sin. And the day of the Lord says that Christ will return and he will judge the living and the dead. And this does not work with a do-whatever-you-want sort of lifestyle. And so this return of Christ was rejected by these false teachers. Unfortunately, over the years, I've sat with friends, with various people, who have decided that they were going to ultimately walk away from Christianity because they somehow found uh, its tenets, the evidence, something lacking. And so they were going to walk away because this surely cannot be true. Only to find out later that there was some deep sin in their life, something that they simply preferred over walking in faith in Christ. And so they preferred their sins, so the obvious consequence of that was rejecting that which held them liable to God. And I think that's what we're seeing happening here in 2 Peter. And so they reject the second coming of Christ. They reject the day of the Lord. They say it's fanciful, it's, it's made up. And to this, Peter powerfully and emphatically says, no, no. And so he makes a defense. He makes an argument. Christ will indeed return. And he makes this defense. He makes this argument by pointing to two key pieces of evidence. And these two pieces of evidence are going to be the things that guide our time spent in the word this morning. So as we trace Peter's arguments against these false teachers and therefore for the day of the Lord, we're going to see two main points. Two main points. First, the Bible is grounded in time and space. The Bible is grounded in time and space. And so here we're going to see that the events of Scripture, one event in particular, these events aren't make-believe. No, they're factual, they're historical, they can be trusted. And our second point is that the Scriptures are completely true or completely sure The passage we're in this morning is an incredibly important passage in developing a right doctrine of Scripture. And so we're going to camp on this point for a while and consider Scripture. What is Scripture? What does our our passage tell us about the character and nature of Scripture? So we'll spend some time there. But before we dive in, I'd love for us to pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather together as a faith family, that we can come together and we can learn from your word, your divine self-disclosure. Lord, you uh, have seen fit to reveal yourself to, to mere sinners like us. But Lord, you are pleased to do this. and You're pleased to apply this word to our hearts by your spirit, and so we pray that you would do that today. Lord, help us to behold Christ in this time, and may he be worshiped. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So once again, our first point this morning is that the scriptures are grounded in time and space. The scriptures are grounded in time and space. And we see this in the first few verses, verses 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. So I think we see this point that the scriptures are grounded in time and space right from the beginning of Peter's argument. Peter begins with we. He begins with we. This entire section is dealing with we. This is important. It may not seem all that important, but Peter isn't saying I, he's saying we. Why? Peter isn't speaking merely of himself in this particular section of scripture. He's speaking of the collective apostolic witness. The collective apostolic witness. In other words, he's speaking of those who were with Christ who were with Christ from the beginning, those who witnessed, observed, heard his life, his ministry, his death upon a cross and his resurrection and even his ascension to the right hand of the Father. These apostles, they collectively saw this, they collectively witnessed this and they proclaimed this. And so what does Peter say about the apostles? What does he say about we? They didn't do something. They didn't do something. They didn't speak of the return of Christ as myth, according to verse 16. They didn't make up a story. They weren't dealing with metaphor. They weren't dealing with fairy tales. No, they were not dealing with myth when they proclaimed Christ's return. Here we get a glimpse, once again, of the false teacher's message. They wanted to attribute this proclamation from the, from the apostles as myth, as mythology. The idea here is, is that they were speaking in fable. They, they weren't speaking in true terms. This stuff that they're saying, it doesn't correspond with reality, with history. No, instead, it, it may have a good purpose. It may teach us uh, good things about the mysterious divine or something like that, but it's not corresponding with fact and with history. It's not true. And to this, Peter wants to say, that's not what's happening. We were not dealing with myth, with that sort of thing. And so what evidence does Peter give to back up his claims? Verse 17, he points to the transfiguration. We're not dealing with, with myth because the transfiguration. Verse 17, that's what's being described when when Peter says, for when he received honor and glory from the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The transfiguration, it's this incredible event uh, recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where Jesus took some of his disciples, including Peter, up onto a mountain. And on that mountain, uh, Jesus was changed. He was transfigured. So much happens in this event. It's an incredible event and an important and significant event. But what Peter wants us to see here is that God or that Jesus' glory was displayed. So his, his clothes were changed and his face changed and he shined the glory of God as the source of the glory of God. He wasn't like Moses in the Old Testament who reflected the glory of God when his face shined. No, he himself, Jesus, uh, shined forth the glory of God. His glory was revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what Peter wants us to see here is, is that glory that was revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, this glory is something that points forward and makes us sure that Christ will return for there his glory will be unveiled for us all to see. 
This is a sure pointer. This is a sure thing that prefigures Christ's return. It's going to happen because of the transfiguration. And so what Peter wants to see where where all this hinges is is in verse 18. Or sorry, uh, verse 16. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then in verse 18, we ourselves heard the voice born from heaven. And so on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus' appearance was changed, when Jesus was declared God's son, when Jesus' glory was on display, this glorious event that points forward to the second coming of Christ, all that that entailed, Peter is saying, we saw that. We saw it. We heard it. We observed it. We were there. When I was looking to attend seminary, I uh, had no idea what I was doing. I wanted to go to a good school. I wanted to be trained and equipped so that I could teach the word. And I had no idea what was a good school, what was a bad school, what was a dangerous school. And so I really spread my net wide and prayed that God would be gracious and not taking me to a terrible place. And, um, and so I visited a lot of schools just trying to get a feel for what was out there. And, um, and, and it was a really sweet experience to be able to do that and to, to see what different schools offered and the different locations. That was a great experience. But there was one school in particular that I went to and there were so many things that I liked about this school. I went on a, uh, on a uh, campus guided tour and my guide might have been the coolest person I have ever met in my entire life. This guy just reeked of cool. He dressed cool. He, his hair looked cool. His glasses were cool. He talked in a way that just made you think, ah, he's interesting. And, and all the while I was thinking, if I went to school here or if I go to school here, I could be like him. And, uh, and not only that, but the campus was fantastic. It was a beautiful place. And there were so many good things about it. And, and I just felt everything clicking and my heart just going, yes, this is a great place. And finally, I, I turned to this guy and I said, what, do you, what does this school think about the Bible? And he, he used some language, some terminology that I didn't understand. So I asked him to clarify and, and he stepped back and he put his hands in his pocket and he got really thoughtful. He said, you know, did Jesus land on this side of the lake or this side of the lake? Who knows? Did Jesus even land on the shore of the lake? How can we know? I don't know. But that's not what's important. What's important is the message. I did not go to that school because of that comment. Also because that school was ridiculously expensive. (laughs) But it was mostly because of the comment. This sort of thing, it sounds so spiritual. It sounds intellectual. It sounds humble even. How can we know? How can we know if the events recorded in Scripture are true? They happened 2,000 years ago, some more. 
How in the world could we know? What evidence do we have to say that we actually know this? And so it's better to just stand back and say, we're not sure the message is what's important. But the question is, is that true? Is that true? Consider what Paul says about the truthfulness of Scripture as he addresses the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Does Paul think it doesn't matter if the resurrection really happened? What matters is the message. No. No, he says if the resurrection didn't actually happen and if it didn't happen in history, if it isn't a factual historical event, then we have no hope. We have no hope of eternal life. We are still in our sin and we are therefore still under the penalty of our sin. We are to be a people most pitied if the resurrection didn't actually occur. No, the scriptures, the Bible are rooted in time and space. They correspond with factual and historical events. These events were witnessed by the apostles. They were observed by the apostles. They were heard by the apostles and they were proclaimed to us that we might know and enjoy God forever. 1 John 1, 1 puts it this way, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands. Verse three, which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. The first thing we see in our passage this morning is that the apostles were eyewitnesses. They were eyewitnesses. They saw the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And what they saw, what they heard, what they observed, they recorded it, they proclaimed it so that we might have it, so that we might benefit, so that we might know God. They saw the transfiguration. They saw the transfiguration. It really happened. Just as the birth of my son has a time, a date, and a location, uh, November 21st, 3.54 a.m., Kaiser off of Kramer, just as the birth of my son has a time, a date, and a location, the transfiguration has a time and date and location associated with it. And because the transfiguration has a time, a date, and a location, the future coming of Christ has a time, a date, and a location associated with it. These are historical, factual events. The second coming of Christ is a future event that will happen in time and space. And so Peter wants us to know it's coming and he wants us to live accordingly. Seek to earnestly confirm your calling and election. Add to your faith virtue and knowledge and self-control. Store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy because Christ is returning and this stuff matters. 
So when we go to the word, when we wake up and we open the pages of scripture, when we're reading this on our lunch break, when we are being about the word and we're reading what God has said to us, we can be confident knowing that we are going to historical, we are going to historical fact. We are going to something not rooted in fairy tale, not rooted in make-believe or imagination, but in eyewitness accounts in history. This is our first point. Our first point is that the word is rooted in time and space for the apostles witnessed it. We have a piece of evidence, a strong piece of evidence, but Peter doesn't want his argument to rest on what some might consider subjective experience. And so he goes further, provides us a second piece of evidence. And this is our second point today. The scriptures are completely sure. The scriptures are completely sure. We see this in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In these verses, we see the prophetic word take center stage. Prophetic word. The first thing we need to ask or clarify is, is what is Peter referencing when he says the prophetic word? Are we talking about all of scripture? Are we talking about the Old Testament? Are we just talking about prophecy? It's an interesting phrase, the prophetic word. He could have used any number of phrases, but this is the one he chooses. I think Peter is actually referencing specifically Old Testament prophecy and prophecy that is dealing explicitly with the second coming of Christ. And so I think he's probably referencing passages like Psalm 2, a messianic psalm, a psalm that points forward towards Christ, that prefigures Christ. Psalm 2, 7 through 9 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so Peter here, he's referring to particular pieces of scripture because he's making a point once again about the day of the Lord. And so these verses, they correspond with that. But I think it's fair for us to to pull this out and make it a universal principle that this isn't just about prophecy about the day of the Lord, but this is true of all scripture. All scripture uh, is being represented in here. And so we have universal principles. We have timeless truths about scripture. And what does Peter say about all of scripture when he speaks of the prophetic word? Verse 19 tells us, he says that in it, we have a more fully confirmed word. A more fully confirmed word. Such an important phrase. A more fully confirmed word. I think it means one of two things. One of two things. First, it might mean that the validity of existing prophecy, things like Psalm 2, the validity of existing prophecy is strengthened through uh, the eyewitness accounts of people like Peter. Because Peter saw the transfiguration, then what happened in Psalm 2 is strengthened. We could say, yes, that absolutely is the case. Christ will return because I saw what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. So Psalm 2 is real. So that's one way that we might interpret this. The second is that it might mean that the word, the prophetic word, Psalm 2, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on, that these words are even more sure 
more sure than the incredible experiences of the apostles at the Mount of Transfiguration. These are more sure than the experiences of what Peter saw with his own eyes and heard with his own ears. The words of scripture are even more sure than those sorts of experiences, as reliable as they are. And so I think this view highlights the reliability and the centrality of the scripture to the Christian life. Both are good options. Both have lots of strong evidence. But I'm inclined to agree with the latter that the scriptures are a more sure word than the apostles' experiences. As great as an evidence as that is, and it's a great evidence, we're talking about Peter witnessing the transfiguration. What we have in the scriptures, this is better, a more sure word. I think what's happening here is that Peter is addressing an objection that many of us are well-versed in. Well, Peter, you might have had that experience. You might have been on that mountain and you might have seen all that happened with Christ, but I wasn't there. I wasn't there. I didn't experience that. So how in the world am I supposed to believe that? You might have had this really cool experience and you were going on and on about it, but I don't know if I trust you because I didn't have that personal experience. So how can I then have my faith strengthened and hold fast to this? We've all felt this way before, right? I think we have. You've heard somebody's incredible story. You've heard their testimony. And you think, yeah, of course, I would believe in a, in a more strong way in Jesus if that happened to me. Of course, if, if miraculously God provided extra checks or, or money in my bank account when it was running low, then yeah, I would believe. Absolutely. If I wasn't in the bathroom on the mission trip when that miracle happened, then I would probably have my faith strengthened. But no, I didn't see it. And so I can't be encouraged like you. No, I didn't have that, that tree fall and I didn't have that thing happen that made me think, oh yes, God is with me and he's listening to me and he's hearing me. And so I can't have a strong faith like you. This is the sort of thing that I think Peter wants to address. No, you do not need some incredible personal experience to know and enjoy Christ. You don't need a burning bush. You don't need letters written in the sky. You have God's very sure words spoken to you in the pages of Scripture. Listen to how, the, uh, how Jesus deals with this objection in the book of Luke, Luke 16. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have the law, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In these verses, Jesus tells a parable of a rich man who dies and goes to Hades. And he asks that a poor man in heaven would be sent to his relatives so that he, they could, uh, the poor man could warn his relatives of what is coming for them. And Abraham says, no, no. If they don't believe in Moses and the prophets, if they don't believe in the sure word of God, then not even a ghost from heaven will change their minds. If the word of God isn't going to change them, then nothing will. 
What we see in Luke 16 and what we see here in 2 Peter is what's called the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture simply says that God's word is enough. God's word is enough. As 2 Timothy, which was on the uh, the screen earlier, says, God's word is is enough to, to leave us equipped and complete Kevin DeYoung defines sufficiency in this way. The scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation and godly living. We don't need any new revelation from heaven. Westminster Catechism says the whole counsel of God concerning all things express, nece- all things necessary for his own glory, men's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture or in a more pithy way the spoken word artist propaganda says that we are a people who hold God's diary in our hands and we are looking for signs Peter wants us to know that even if we haven't beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ literally like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration that we can still behold the glory of God in the face of Christ in the pages of scripture God's glory shines in the word and we can behold Christ there. So he wants us to know this. He wants us to be sure of this. There is a more sure word than these experiences provide. And the flip side of this is true also. Some of us, we might have negative experiences that we've had in this world, things that make us not want to believe in Jesus. And what Peter wants us to see here is that God's word is a more sure word even than our negative experiences, what we think to be true based on what we've seen or what we've heard, what what has happened to us even. And we have a more sure word in the scriptures. We can be sure of God's future plans because he tells us of them in the scriptures. We can be sure of our place in Christ because God's word tells us this. But that's not all this passage tells us about God's word. It it tells us so clearly that that God's word is a a more sure word, but but this passage unpacks so much about scripture. And so we wanna take a minute and just consider some of these various aspects of scripture. The first thing I think we see in this passage alongside all of this is that the Bible is the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. We get that phrase, the word of God, from passages like this, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here we see the rationale for what we just said. God's word is enough, it's sufficient, it's a more sure word. Why? Well, because no prophecy of scripture, uh, and this is a side note, is also why we can apply this, uh, the prophecy part to all of scripture. Peter changes prophecy of scripture here. So, Uh, Because no prophecy of scripture was produced by the will of man, it was produced by God. That's why it's sure. That's why it's enough. In other words, scripture, all scripture, every word in the Bible, these are God's words. It is God's word. They're not simply Peter's word. They're not simply Paul's words. They're not the prophet's words. They're not the writers of the Old Testament's words. No, they're God's words, all of them. 
You might hear people trying to pit the Bible against itself. You might see people trying to pit Peter against Jesus or Paul against Jesus or Peter against Paul. But that doesn't make sense in light of what we see in this passage. There is no such thing as red letter Christianity according to 2 Peter chapter 1. Jesus' words are God's words and Peter's words are God's words because he spoke from God. And therefore, these words, they're all backed by God's character. They're backed by his perfect power, his wisdom, his loving kindness, his authority, and so on. This means at least two things. Because these words are God's words, I mean two things. One, it means that they're true words. God's word is truth. Another way to put this is that God's word is inerrant. In the original manuscripts, God's word is without error. It is true. And second, because this is God's word, it is authoritative. These are God's words and therefore they are final words. We do not sit above God's words. We sit under them. They are God's. They're final. And because these words are true and because they're authoritative, that means these are words to be believed and obeyed. This might be the least controversial thing in the world to you. This might just be absolutely something that you believe wholeheartedly in. I mean, we've, we've said the phrase, the word of God, multiple times on the stage this morning for good reason. And so it just may be assumed by you, but I, I, I want you to know that this sort of thing is consistently attacked in our world. People are not content to allow God to be the author of Scripture. They're not allowed to stand under the authority and the truthfulness of Scripture. And so they continually seek to knock down God as author of the Word. An incredibly influential and famous pastor recently preached a sermon series called The Bible Told Me So. And his entire premise for this series was that our theology adult Christian theology is built upon a children's song and that's a bad thing. The song, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. It says this is where we erred. We base our faith upon what the Bible has told us. He challenges that Christianity does not exist because of the Bible any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Your birth certificate documents something that happened. In other words, he's saying that the Bible simply documents what happened. It is not actually God's words about what happened. Many have rightly scoured this statement as an attempt to liberate Jesus from the Bible. People like this pastor want to say that the Bible is is the word about God rather than God's word. One article I read quoted B.B. Warfield, the great uh, defender of the scriptures in in reference to what's going on here. And and B.B. Warfield said, the scriptures are a book which may be frankly appealed to at any point with the assurance that whatever it may be found to say, that is the word of God. So we can point to a passage and say, thus saith the Lord. This is what we're seeing in our passage. You don't liberate Jesus from the Bible. No, the Bible is comprised of people who did not say something on their own accord or they did not interpret prophecy on their own. No, they spoke truly and with authority from God. This is God's word. So we see here that that God's word is um, 
It's a word that is more sure. We see here that God's word, or that the scriptures are God's word, but we also see in this passage that the Bible is full of personality. The Bible is full of personality. This comes from the same verses we just read, verses 20 and 21. And these verses are important for us in understanding how the scriptures came to be. They came to be through what B.B. Warfield called concursus. Concursus, it's a big theological word, but it's an important word. It tells us how the Bible came to be. And what it tells us is, is that God, both God and man contributed to the final scriptures. There's a few polls here. Some people will say that, that the Bible cannot be God's word because it was written through human authors, fallible human beings, messed up human beings. And so no doubt there is significant error here and it can't be fully trusted. There are others who think the only way this could be God's word is if God dictated his word to, to people in a robotic sort of way so that only, uh, they were used only as robot or robots or as scribes. And what concursus says is, is, no, God and man were both active in the writing of the scriptures. It shows us that God didn't merely dictate words to authors. He carried them along by the Spirit, and they wrote according to their personality, according to their style, their giftings, what they've experienced, what they know, their family background, uh, if they were Jewish, if they were Greek, whatever that is, they brought that to the stage, and God used them and carried them along by His Spirit. The wording here used in this passage is similar to the wording used when speaking about boats, sailing in particular. A boat's sails are hoisted and they're caught by the wind and that boat is carried along by the wind. It's the wind that carries the boat along. And, and so Peter, many have said that Peter is wanting to develop a, a, a doctrine of inspiration here that says that, that the authors are like the boat and the spirit carried them along and thus the scriptures were written. Uh, another way to put this that people have put forward, and I find this to be a little more helpful, uh, is the idea of a ferry, a ferry. My wife, Raylan, and I spent a fair amount of time in Newport Beach. That's where she grew up. And so we have a little taco stand that we love going to. It's not a stand, it's a building, but they have dollar tacos on Friday and it's great. And so we go to this taco place and then we often go across the bay to Balboa Island. And in order to do that, we take a ferry across. We did this just past Friday, this past Friday. And we got onto the ferry, we took our Honda Pilot, our Red Pilot onto the ferry and a few other cars came behind us. And on this ferry was all sorts of diversity was represented. Different people, different cars. There were bikes. There were people uh, who just walked onto the ferry. There was all sorts of diversity on the ferry, but the captain took us on his route and he got us to the other side to where he intended for us to go. I couldn't go up to the captain and say, hey, do you think we can maybe go up a few miles or maybe let's take this baby out to sea? No, he knew where he was taking us and he made sure we got there even though there was an incredible amount of personality represented on the ferry. He ferried us across. We don't want to push these analogies too far. We, we can err in significant ways, but we want to recognize the point. God's word is full of personality. It's full of personality because God gloriously and humbly stooped. He stooped down from heaven and he used people like you and me to declare his glorious grace, to disclose his personality, his character. 
and his plan of redemption. He told us how we can know him by grace through faith in Christ. And so now we can. And not only that, but we can have hope of a future because Christ is going to return back to us. And he gloriously revealed all this stuff through people. We can wonder at this. We can marvel at this. This is the sort of God that we have. And so we see that God's word is a more sure word. It is God's word and it is a word full of personality. There's one last aspect of the scriptures I want us to see here and we're actually close with this and it'll also be our point of application this morning. But this last point is that the Bible guides us. The Bible guides us. We see this in verse 19. We've already been there, but it's good to go back for this. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What's the image we see here? We've already looked at this passage and we've seen that God's word is a more sure word than experience. But here we see something more. God's word is a lamp shining in the darkness. It's a lamp shining in the darkness. Remember the context here. Peter is speaking of the day of the Lord. Christ is coming back. He's coming back and he wants us to live in light of his return. There's a glorious day coming where he will return. But until that day, we live in a day of darkness and darkness. And so so we need to feel this image here. Darkness is to make us uh, feel like we're unsafe. Our, Our footing is not sure. We can turn to the left or to the right in air. Enemies are all around us crouching, ready to strike, ready to pounce on us. The darkness is not a good place to be. It's not a sweet place. It's not an enjoyable place. It's a place full of terror. And this is where we are until Christ returns. What are we left with in this darkness? What are we left with? How will we navigate this darkness? How will we live in light of Christ's return? We pay attention. We pay attention to the sure word of God, which is a lamp shining in a dark place. This is the image that we even have on our screens, the idea of a lamp shining in the darkness. We live in this word. We hold this word before us. We don't neglect this word and go wandering around in the darkness without light. No, we cling tightly to our lamp. We let it illuminate our path. We let it shine brightly so that we can be sure-footed. And notice verse, notice verse 19 towards the end. We do this for a period of time. We pay attention to this lamp, to this word, and until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Why? Why do we do this? Because the lamp, the word of God, it has a goal. It has a goal. It, its goal is to lead us to Christ, to lead us to Christ, to illuminate our need for Christ, to illuminate uh, Christ or God's plan of redemption uh, seen in Christ and played out in Christ to illuminate the centrality and glory of Christ. God's word tells us that we are people in need of a savior. We have personally and by nature rebelled against the holy God. 
We are people who are in need of redemption and God has gloriously provided that redemption in the person and work of Jesus. And now all of us by grace through faith can draw near to God, have our sins dealt with, and we can be glad and expectant and full of hope and joy as we await that coming day because God's word has illuminated this for us. And we do this until the day dawns. We live in the dark right now, but there is coming a day where light will flood and the morning star will rise in our hearts. And this is a reference to Jesus. The goal of the word will be fully accomplished. We will have Jesus in all of his glory before us when he returns. We will see him. We will know him. We will behold him. He will be ours and we will be his forever. Until that day, until that glorious day, that day that is sure, that day that will will be rooted in history, we pay attention to this prophetic word. We pay attention. We allow it to be our lamp. The sure word, the word of God, a word full of personality, truth, and authority. We live in it. We cling to it. We believe it. We obey it. We orient our lives around it. We let it light our path. Let's pray that the Lord would help us to that end. Father, we praise your holy name that we can come to you this morning and we can know you because you have seen fit to reveal yourself to us. Lord, that you were not content to have us guess at what you're like. You did not have us uh, guess at how we might uh, come to you. No, Lord, you revealed your holy character. Lord, you told us what you were like. You revealed commandments that, that show us your character, that help us to understand our own sin and our need for you. You have gloriously provided your son that we, might be, that we might be brought back to you and have our sins forgiven and dwell with you and enjoy you forever. Lord, help us to marvel at this. Lord, help us to see these words as, as glorious and true. Help us to abide in them and to behold Christ as we go to these words. Lord, we are so grateful that you would bless us so abundantly. You are a good father. And so, Lord, we rejoice in you. We rejoice in your son, Jesus, today. Would you go with us now? Uh, causing these words to dwell, to, to dwell richly in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.